if you learned about the Enlightenment in high school, or if you were to take, I think, a more typical approach, the Enlightenment is always where you learn about some French philosopher. There's a bunch of them. Maybe you'll learn about more than one. And there's this typical understanding of this is what the Enlightenment means, right? When certain people are becoming extremely enlightened. What exactly they mean by that word isn't always clear, and they're not just getting smarter. And some of the ones you might focus on, oh, we'll learn about Descartes. We'll learn about Descartes and his idea of what thought is, how that relates to reason, how reason relates to identity, the whole idea of I think, therefore I am, right? The idea that if you are not a thinking person, then you're not a person. So there's a lot of problems with that. Number one being prior to this time, there wasn't one clear way to judge people, right? Now I think it's very common. People are very comfortable in judging other people by how smart or dumb they think they are. Not that they're using tests necessarily, but people can say that person has a low IQ and thus they are a worse person than me. We shouldn't say this, but it's something that people do and think. It's something we've just absorbed in our culture. And that's kind of, it's problematic in a number of ways. One, because we assume that it's always been this way, and it hasn't. I mean, it's problematic also because there is no universally acknowledged way to measure anyone's actual intelligence. Short of just asking them, what things do you know? But we never ask them, tell me all the things you know. We pick an arbitrary list do you know these things? Oh, great. Then you are smart. Do you not know these things? Sorry, you're actually stupid. You know other things I don't care about. The things you're supposed to know are this list of things. And again, the age of enlightenment is supposedly supposed to be the age of reason. But reason and intelligence are not the same thing. You can be a very unintelligent person, but with a highly developed sense of reason, according to Descartes. And by reason, I think the word you might be more familiar with here is emotional intelligence. Your ability to just not lose your sense, to not lose your shit, basically, if something bad happens. If someone says something you don't agree with, and you just blow up at them and say, that's crazy, that's wrong, that's stupid, that's unreasonable, right? That's the absence of reason. So to me, that's more about emotional intelligence. Another famous you know, philosopher of the Enlightenment, Kant, and his ideas of what it means to be an ethical person, that every person is obligated to be good. He's trying to come up with a sense of right and wrong that doesn't require belief in the same God, belief in the same religion. Because Europe in the 1700s is a divided land. Not everyone is of the same faith, right? There are many, many people who have very different ideas of where they're going when they die, but Kant wants to say, is there still some way we can all agree what it means to be good, what it means to be bad? Thomas Paine, you might recognize from the sort of the history of this country, had a lot of very unique ideas on what exactly is liberty and how is that different from freedom? Are they synonyms? Are they different? Are they natural states? Do they exist in nature? Or is it something we've created? Voltaire, most famous for his theories of, of tyranny. What does it mean to have a king who is a tyrant? 
Like, what's the separation between tyranny and its opposite? And what is the opposite of tyranny? Is, is democracy the opposite? Or can democracies also be tyrannical? But this traditional view hides the fact that the philosophers are the smallest part of the era. Right? We call it the Enlightenment. We, we name this entire era roughly from, let's say, 1650 to 1800. We call it the Enlightenment. But the number of people who we are talking about numbers in, in like the tens. The population is gigantic. There are hundreds of millions of people walking around, most of whom have never even heard of these people. But today, historians say, yes, this is the Enlightenment. And it's important because there's some guy named Descartes who wrote this thing. So what I want to talk about is how this is even able to happen in the, in the first place and what, do, what is the general result of the Enlightenment. So, first question, what caused the Enlightenment? Yeah, I don't know, right? Um, cause and effect are always sticky things to talk about in history. It's, it's not like the hard sciences are about actually telling the future. Right? A chemist can say, here is this chemical and this chemical. I've never seen these two chemicals before, but I've seen chemicals like them. And I know if I mix them together in this heat and this pressure, this is going to happen. I can predict the future 100%. I will not be surprised. Nothing else in life is like that. Okay? So when I think of the hard sciences, I think of actual ability to predict the future. I would say maybe not the most useful future to predict. It's not always so useful to know exactly how that chemical is going to interact. I'd much rather know what lottery number is going to be called tomorrow. But there's no hard science for that, right? We can call them the social sciences all we want, but social sciences cannot predict the future, right? There's at no point has, has any political scientist ever actually like accurately predicted any election with any sort of no better than 50, 50%. Yes, sir. I was going to say something very simple. You want to whisper it to me? The Simpsons predicted Donald Trump for elected. That's true. So here's... Okay, so the phrase I put in at the end there was no better than 50-50, which is to say, like, yes, a person can say, I think X person's going to win the presidency. And they might be right. It doesn't become valuable until they can prove that they can do it every single time. It's all right. It's all right. So, so, yeah, I know it's just supposed to be a joke. But I mean, the point is that there are people who actually say they can predict these things. And I would say that's a fine thing to say. But if it were actually true, everyone would know about it and we would follow that system because being able to predict the future is a valuable thing. So this is what I'm going to say. Even though we can't say what caused the Enlightenment, I can say definitely what allowed it to happen was the thing that you have to put on your map quiz, right? The so-called triangular trade, which I know you probably had to learn about at some point in high school, but I just want to make this very clear. What this allowed was not just a lot of money, okay? It allowed a lot of money to be in the hands of a very, very small group of people. So the wealthiest of the people lived in all of these places. They were insanely wealthy people in Africa, right? Those who were actually accepting the goods manufactured in Europe were the people who were selling the slaves made a lot of money selling those slaves. They weren't selling their own people, they were selling other people. Same thing here, those who were owning and trading the slaves and the natural resources, whether it be tobacco or cotton, especially sugar, 
also had a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And of course, in Europe, the same thing applies. Those who actually own the factories who are making the goods that are being produced have all the money. You might think that today in the United States, the difference between the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich is worse than has ever been in human history. It might be the worst it's ever been in the history of this country. That's a difficult argument to make. It's not the worst it's ever been in history. As far as historians have been able to determine, the point where the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich are the most far apart is the Enlightenment. And all of the great Enlightenment philosophers, where do you think they fall on that spectrum? Yeah, on the top. On the tippity-tippity-top. None of them have that money because they work in factories, right? Work as a sense of like going somewhere and getting a paycheck and having an employer has never been and will never be the path to extreme wealth. It's like it, that is not where wealth comes from. Wealth comes from owning that factory, that the guy who, who owns your boss, who you will never see, who you will never meet, right? You will not exist in the same place at the same time. Sorry to be depressing about it, but this is a system that I did not invent and has been around for a long time. There are other factors that we have to talk about in terms of what creates the enlightenment. One of them is kind of difficult to explain. We're not exactly sure exactly how this comes about, but there is a massive population growth. Not an explosion, but a definite growth, right? There is the sense that the population in these places have been more or less flat, but starting in the 1650s, there is a definite trend upwards. This is not medical advancement. This is not technological advancement, right? The, the medical schools we know it doesn't exist yet. These are not people who have suddenly just figured out health better. This population growth has much more to do with the cessation of violence. And we see it in, in many places around Europe more in Europe than elsewhere, right? We don't see a similar growth in most of Asia or most of the Americas. All right, now this graph can be a little confusing. I'm not concerned with what's after 1800. I am most concerned from this window right here, which you might think that the trend is continuing, but it's not. If we were to continue the trend from the 1300s, you see very clearly right here, they're already something has begun to happen. Like, what is it? This is not the age of the, you know, railroads and the steel mills. Something has happened. I would argue this is colonization. This is what slave labor can get you. This is, if that's an advancement, I'm not quite sure I would call it that, but at least it creates a healthy, healthy profit for the people at the top. Others will point out the explosion in the number of books. But for me, this is, this is a non-factor because the growth in books matches the growth in population. More people are not reading more books. The same group of people who had books in the 1600s, there are just more of them. Not a lot more, right? But mass education, the sense of like sending kids off to school is not a product of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment does not want that to happen. Mass education happens in the late 1800s and it comes about as a means of social, societal control, right? It has nothing to do with actually making everybody smarter. That is not the goal. All right, this is probably the most confusing of the graphs. So I'll just point out here, what you're seeing is not actual population, 
it's the growth rate, right? the rate at which the population increases. All of these numbers, of course, are estimates, right? So how valuable this might be. I would just point out that the age of the Enlightenment is a, for the first time, a massive jump, that there are more people around. Why this might be, and here I would point out that this is happening despite the fact that there is a massive shift in population. Europe is getting more people at the same time that millions of people are leaving Europe. Africa is getting more people at the same time that there are millions of people leaving Africa. Of course, the Americas are getting millions and millions of people added to it. So it's very difficult for us to talk about the growth rate in the Americas because most of that rate is coming from Europeans and Africans. All right, one more graph. I know this one is very tiny and hard to read. What you need to understand is what it says on top. Global deaths and conflicts. Right? People who die because of war. This big dot up here, that's the wars of religion. That is the wars between the Catholics and the Protestants in Europe in the 1600s. The next big war in Europe, the Napoleonic Wars, which are mostly fought outside of Europe, and the First and Second World Wars. So between here and here is the Enlightenment. Well, in my opinion, that explains the entirety of the population growth rate thing. There was this horrendous war in which something between a quarter and a third of Europe kills itself over religion, and then they cool it for a while. Not that there aren't wars anymore, but most of these wars are very small and happen outside of Europe. So, a century without war, when the rich get richer and richer and richer, can produce, perhaps, the I, again, I want to say it's not cause and effect. I, I, I can't make any sort of argument about cause and effect. I can say these two things happen at the same time. Now, again, if you know anything from your science or social science classes, you should learn this. Causation and correlation are not the same. Two things can happen at the same time and have no effect on each other. And you know this obviously, right? I could like kick over this chair and give you a Snickers bar. You didn't get the Snickers bar because the chair hit the ground, right? Causation and correlation are not the same thing. But oftentimes we have nothing else. The only way we can try to find the cause, that this is the basis of most medical research, right? Most epidemiology is just asking people what is happening to them and then trying to use that information to say, okay, so everyone has lung cancer and they're, all the people who have it are smoking. So I guess smoking causes lung cancer. But there are other times when that doesn't hold true. Okay? There are other correlations that can be very misleading. So in a nutshell, what is the Enlightenment about? What, what, what unites these philosophers? What unites their thought? It is not quote-unquote science. All right. When I use the word science, when I understand the so-called scientific revolution, it is about experimentation. It's about the gathering, the creation, the manufacturing of new data, new information that did not exist before, right? Through experimentation, where I, I, I want to find out if X is true, so I will run experiments, and those experiments will give me data. I will know true or false. I will know a number. I will know something, some information I didn't have before, right? I want to find out, like, what is 
the uh, effect of airspeed on like the movement of certain objects. So I'll run an experiment and I'll move things through different kinds of liquid or air and I'll count how fast they go. And that is new data. It did not exist before. That is what I would think of as science. The Enlightenment is not about science in that way. It's about taxonomy. That's the word I would use. Taxonomy means cataloging and classifying the visible, observable, feelable world. This is what's most tricky. I think in a lot of our science classes, we don't talk about how different some sciences are from each other, right? We use this word science and this is big bubble in which there are some things that are nothing like others, right? Many of the sciences are entirely taxonomical. There's no experimentation really involved. All they're about is observing and drawing conclusions from those observations. They're not making new data. I'm not saying that one is more valuable than the other. I'm just saying that the, the source of knowledge is very, very different. And it's important to know that the source of taxonomy is one with a lot of hubris. Hubris meaning, right, there's a lot of arrogance, the sense that it is possible for people to actually observe everything in the universe. And of course, that's not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. But this is the age of the creation of the first encyclopedias, right? What it means to have an encyclopedia is a book that you say will contain all of the knowledge in a book. I think we know well enough now that that will never be possible, right? Even when you have millions of people working on the book, like Wikipedia, not really a book, but still it's an encyclopedia. Even there, we know you're never going to get everything. But Diderot and other philosophers of the Enlightenment actually set out, like, I'm going to write a book, me, by myself, and it's going to contain all human knowledge. The arrogance of it is kind of mind-blowing. But they're understanding that by human knowledge, we mean all observable true things. And by classification, I mean just walking around and saying, this tree has leaves of this shape. It has bark of this color. The tree next to it has leaves of this shape, and you're just going to write this down. Understanding, like, okay, so what separates these five trees? What's, what do they have in common? These 17 animals I found outside my mansion, what do they have in common? What don't they have in common? And this is where we get the creation of our understanding of the natural world. What exactly is different between a lizard and a bird and a snake and a snail? And we just, we observe. We say, well, some have bodies like this. Some have different colored whatever, they have different temperature in their bodies, they're, they're, they have different shaped hearts. How you want to classify these things, this is important, is arbitrary. You could decide that the most important way to separate them out is the color of their ears. And you would find interesting patterns. Or whether or not they have blood. And what color is their blood? And how thick is it? What does it taste like? I want to make this clear to you. In the Enlightenment, there are multiple taxonomies of the universe competing with each other. Some of them are just that silly. It's like the color of the shape of their ears, etc. Nowadays, we, we only really accept one taxonomy, right? The, the taxonomy that is king of all taxonomies 
is sex. Can these two things make more of themselves? If they can, they are the same. If they cannot, they're different. However, that taxonomy is, is essentially broken. All taxonomies are broken because in every taxonomy there are exceptions. What do you do with animals that can change their gender? Because there are many animals that can. What do you do with animals that are hermaphrodites, that are in fact both genders, or one gender at one time and one gender at another? Well, I mean, that's the thing. Taxonomies are always fundamentally flawed because they don't actually exist in the real world. This wasn't our job to uncover this system of order that God put there. There is no system of order. We are imposing order upon it, and we're doing it very messily. So, again, I'm separating this out. When I say scientific revolution, the idea of running experiments, actually gaining new data with new gadgets, new toys, we might think of Copernicus or Newton, right? This growth of gadgetry with microscopes and telescopes and thermometers and barometers and anemometers and the millions of tools that scientists use to gather new data. The Age of Reason is not about this. It has nothing to do with experimentation. It's just observing the world and trying to find order in that insanity. And the debates that they have over their taxonomies, over, that's crazy, how could you think that you have to separate these things out by color? We have to separate them out by the weight of their blood. Because X, Y, or Z. Because this or that ancient author said that this or that thing was true. Okay, take a little pause here. When I said that the philosophers were a relatively small part of the Enlightenment, <clears throat> what I mean is, in, in the terms of the population of, let's say, random city in Africa, random city in Brazil, random city <coughs> in, in like larger Europe, most of the people are not going to be concerned with these philosophers. But in any one of these places, they will be familiar with something that has changed since the Protestant Revolution. Again, I'm telling you, since the Protestant Revolution, the number of Christians has actually begun to shrink. There are fewer Christians than there used to be. This will change, right? But there is actually this decline in religious, um, I don't want to say fervor, but religious even identification. But these are people who still live in what we would typically call Christendom. What do they create in its place? The secret societies, or so-called esoteric orders, or also called voluntary associations. Things that you might know from your favorite conspiracy theory, right? Illuminatis, the Masons, secret order of whatever. These are created in the 1700s, largely as a replacement for the church, whether a replacement for a Presbyterian church, or a Lutheran church, or the Catholic church. It is a place for people usually neighbors, almost always men, to gather together. And they will sing certain songs. They might have a secret handshake. There will be certain rituals. There are certain beliefs. But it's not church. Okay? It has nothing to do with the afterlife, nothing to do with your soul, nothing to do with what happens when you die, except in one very important way. One of the backbones of the church is supposed to be the... the the money that the church collects, right? The money that the church collects is supposed to go to somewhere. It's supposed to feed the hungry, 
right? Clothe the naked, care for the widow and the orphan. If you're outside the church, you need to replace that somehow. Somebody has to care for the widow and the orphan. Someone has to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. These secret societies basically create what we would now understand as insurance agencies. Insurance agencies have not always been around. Like the idea that you go online and you give Geico $100 a year so that if you get in a car accident, they'll buy you a new car. Right? That's, that's by law. That's required. If you drive a car, you need to have insurance. If you get a house and you get a loan to buy that house, it's required by law to have home insurance. The same thing. If the house burns down, you can't just say, ah, whatever. There needs to be insurance that they can say that the bank will be paid what it was owed. It's kind of like gambling. I mean, it is gambling. The house always wins, and you're hoping, you're hoping that you're going to get more money out than you put in. What these societies function as is they take a little bit of money. They're the dues, you might call it, right? You give your $5 a month, and then if you die young and you leave behind a wife and seven children, secret society will then say, well, you were a good member, you paid your dues, we will take care of them. I mean, we're not gonna, they're not gonna be rich, but we'll give them a little money every month. Oh, your house burned down, you're a good member in fine standing, you paid your dues, right? And the moment that anyone fears corruption in the system, everybody runs away, everybody flees. So these societies are extremely, extremely careful about who they let in. That's why they're so secretive. They don't want everyone to, to be a member of their insurance agency because they don't trust anyone. It's usually just a couple of neighbors, a handful of men who somehow may be related to each other or they know each other well. These same voluntary associations often will have some organ, some place where they meet, right? They'll, this is where our idea of learned men gathering in like cafes or coffee houses and reading magazines and newspapers together. They all read the same one. They all go to the same place. So a good sized city might have 15 coffee houses in it, but it's not like today where you go to one Starbucks, you can go to any Starbucks. <laughs> they go to a specific place. Right? It's all extremely secretive because there's so much money at risk. So, one of the biggest jokes to me as a historian is seeing the change since this guy named Dan Brown has started writing these books. Now people actually think the secret societies like do stuff. That they like secretly rule the world or whatever, like these conspiracy theories of like, oh, the Illuminati, they're behind whatever, they're with the aliens who built the pyramids, or they actually control who won whatever presidential election. It's like, it's so bizarre, it's beyond bizarre, because all they are are insurance agencies, right? They, they were never any sort of, I don't know, like if they actually ran the world, I don't know, I don't know. Yes, I have an answer. So the whole Okay, so this is where we, we're, we're going to get to that, is that why, why do some people hate certain secret societies so much? So I would say, yeah, definitely, I mean, whether they're worshipping Satan or not, I really can't prove, but I understand that the people who say they're worshipping Satan, they already hated that order, and then they ascribe negative things to them. So, to be clear, these secret societies, they are not, obviously, popular with the church. Right, because the church sees them as competition, and 
not just the Catholic Church, right? The Lutheran Church or the Anglican Church or the Presbyterian Church, they specifically tell their members, if you come to church on Sunday with us, you are not supposed to be members of these secret societies. But many members of secret societies double dip. They go to church, but they then give less money on Sundays because they have less money, because they've given more money to these secret societies. So the people who tell us that the Illuminati, like, I don't know, sacrifice children or whatever, tend to be members of these churches saying, like, these are bad. They're real, real bad. They're run by the devil, and they're just, you should not be involved in them. So it adds to the appeal, of course, because the people are saying, like, what? Come on, that's not, I gotta go join it and see what it's really about. As often happens. So every single one of the people you're seeing are members of secret societies. Every single one of these pictures you're seeing are certain philosophers. You tell me, really simply here, what do they all have in common? Other than their fine choice in wigs and hair color. They're all, yeah, they are white as the driven snow. And they're all men, though they may be hidden, because of course they're not dressed in the way that men might be dressed today, but yeah. So who's being enlightened? A very small upper crust part of the population. So this new church is, again, it, it, one of the things that makes the secret society so interesting is they're all deeply Christian-esque, right? They all have stories that sound like stories you might find in the Bible. There's a sense of, of redemption, a sense of worship, a sense of, of sanctity. And again, some people prefer to call them volunteer associations because you can choose whether or not to be in them. I like to call them secret societies because I think that sounds sexier, and that's often what people, when they think of the word secret society, they think of Masons or Illuminati or whatever. If there is one religious belief that actually unites them, we would call this deism, right? Now, deism is a very big talk, topic for me to talk about in just 30 seconds. The understanding basically is that God is real, but unknowable. And he might not even be around anymore. Like, not that he's dead, but he's doing something else. In another universe, doing whatever. He created the world. He created all the wonders of nature, but he has no hand in the game anymore. Right? That there's no miracles. There's no, like, prayer is meaningless because it's like, can an ant pray to a person? Right? Like, God is so beyond you. Which is to say, deism is not about the Bible, per se. It's not about Jesus, or the Lamb, or the blood, or all these sorts of other symbols of you know, the redemption story that's in the New Testament. What's most troubling about this is many people want to believe that most of the Founding Fathers, all of whom were Enlightenment philosophers, believed in Jesus Christ in the way that you or your mom or uncle might believe in Jesus Christ. And, the thing is, the writings of Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine and George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, they're very obviously deist, right? They will often talk about the Almighty, the Creator. Those are code words, meaning a deist creator who is no longer with us, right? They will often thank divine providence. That is not a concept you get from the Bible. Divine providence is just saying, thank you, creator, for creating a world in which I was able to get these things. You're not actually saying, thank you, God, for you know curing my, my sick little girl. Thank you, God, for helping me out. Because God is no longer with us. He created the world and he left. Okay. 
So, I told you already, the dominant taxonomy that, you know, that we use today, the one sort of that wins the Enlightenment, is the sexual taxonomy. I, I, I define things by how, how well they can reproduce. That's how I figure out, are these two bacteria the same? Well, does this bacteria produce more of itself? Yes. Does this bacteria produce more of itself? Yes. They're separate bacteria. Do they fight each other? Okay. They don't reproduce, blah, 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 so on and so forth. Now, how are these two lizards the same or different? Can they have sex? Do they produce more lizards? All of this breaks down for humanity because we are all one species. That taxonomy idea will not separate out different kinds of people because any two people, if their sexual organs are working, can make more. Because we're not different species. We're all the same. Doesn't matter from how far away they come. It doesn't matter how big or small they are, right? The smallest person of one gender getting it on with the largest person of the other gender are still going to make a baby because we're not actually species. So at the dawn of the Enlightenment, the idea is still very much what the ancient Greeks and Romans believed, which is that people look different because of the weather. The weather, the weather, the climate, the temperature of where they're from. So if you want to make lighter skinned people, take some dark skinned people and then move them permanently up north. Their skin won't change, of course, but their kids might be lighter. And then their kids' kids will be lighter. And their kids, 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 kids will be lighter. Now, if this sounds bonkers wrong to you, I want you to understand that is much closer to the truth than what is going to replace it. Because the reason we do look different is, you know, evolutionary adaptations. Like, I go out in the sun in the summer and I burn to a crisp within five minutes, right? I have to wear like SPF 100. It is no joke. But what is my superpower? I don't really need to go outside to get all the vitamin D that I need to live, right? Other people actually have to worry about vitamin D levels. Not that you do, but the point is, you know, vitamin D is really important. And most people have to be outside for at least 15 minutes to an hour a day to get what they need, or they will get sick. There's a, a disease called rickets. You can get it, right? Redheaded babies don't get rickets. They don't need sunlight. We are evolved for, like, caves, I guess. I don't know. The point being that that happened over a long period of time. That didn't happen because of the temperature necessarily, but the relationship with the sun. The Enlightenment thinkers, however, say no. There is a taxonomy. There's a hierarchy. There are certain races, and some races are just smarter, stronger, prettier, and there's a very clear pecking order. For Blumenbach and others, I should say, he says there are five races, there really there's six. The sixth one is mixed. Anyone who is a mixture of any kind is the bottom rung, number six. Blumenbach also believes that these races were a natural creation, right? That some races are actually created by like, maybe by different monkeys or something. And that's why their mixture is always, always bad. Now, I'm gonna let you guess, guy's name is Blumenbach. Which race do you think he puts on top? I don't even have to say, it's obvious, right? Now there are other people who argue with him, right? Kant very famously said, no, 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 no. It is about the weather and it is changeable, right? He's saying like, it's clear that you say that all of these people are a Negroid race, but they're not all the same. 
all these people are Caucasoid race, but they're not all the same. It does change by the weather. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with intelligence. But Kant also believes that there is a perfect temperature, that if people who live outside of this perfect temperature zone are worse. Now, to make this clear, right? There is no such thing as a perfect temperature, right? There's maybe there's a temperature at which you don't need to wear clothes, I suppose. Maybe that's the perfect. That's not what he's talking about. He thinks Europe is the perfect temperature. And again, if you try to survive without clothing in Europe, you will freeze to death. So what I find interesting here is their taxonomy will connect with the animals who live in those parts of the world. So there's a sense that the mongoloids look this way because the animals in that part of the world look this way. And the European caucasoids look this way because, and so on and so forth. Right? Again, this is science. Right? This is in books of science, even today. Okay? Like, there are still physical anthropologists around the world who separate people out into Negroid, Mongoloid, Caucasoid. And they will make certain assumptions about the shape of their skull, and their maximum strength, and their maximum intelligence, and it is entirely not true. I mean, there was a very serious, uh, very famous series of experiments in the early 20th century where someone actually gathered several physical anthropologists and just gave them a bunch of skulls. Right? And they knew where the skulls were from. Right? They, they took a random assortment of skulls from people all over the world and said, all right, scientists, tell us, looking at these skulls, what are the races of these people? And it was double blind. Right? They took several physical anthropologists. No two of them classified the skulls the same way, and none of them got more than 50% of them right. So this idea that all Europoid skulls have a certain shape that are different from all Negroid skulls. And of course, what did the physical anthropologists say when they found out what they were wrong? They said, oh, well, that's because all of these are mixed. These are people of mixed race. That's, that's the easiest way out of anything, right? All races are mixed, right? There is no such thing as a pure anything. But that was their excuse. Like, well, if you'd given us pure examples, well, what, what blood test do you give a person to find out whether they're purely there's no such thing. Okay. Feudalism is not a term that you might expect to see in a history class that starts in the year 1500. Most people hear the word feudalism, and if they know it at all, it means Middle Ages. It means knights and kings and, I don't know, dark ages of Europe somehow. But what you need to understand is the word feudalism does not exist until the Enlightenment. It is the word that the Enlightenment invents to talk about the bad old days, to say how bad and wrong the previous system was. Under feudalism, a person's worth was supposedly only based on their faith by their religious devotion. What the Enlightenment is arguing is, no. Right? No, that your worth should be based on your productivity, your reason, your wealth, your standing in society. However, I'm not actually convinced that the, that the Enlightenment actually succeeds in this way. While feudalism looked at 
business as inherently problematic compared to military exploits? I think that this is still something that's just different, a different culture from family to family, from group to group. There are people in this country, in any country, who will feel that the only way to like honor or, or a high standing in society is by joining the military, right? Very proud military families who say, whatever else we might do, the number one thing for us is service to our country, service to our leaders, service to whatever. And there are others who will say, no, 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 the only way forward, the only way truly to gain is just to be successful in business, to have financial security, to have enough money to do what we want. And I would argue that the fact that many people still think of billionaires as inherently untrustworthy, as that there's nothing you can do to like legally or ethically amass that kind of wealth means that the Enlightenment didn't really convince a lot. Well, here's the question, right? Some people, this is something we can argue about. Not everyone thinks what I think, or not everyone thinks what you think. Some people think that behind every single fortune, there is some crime or many crimes. But others people think, no, they say, if you're so smart, why are you rich? The understanding of rich people are rich because they got that way, right? they, they earned it, they did something, or their parents did. And poor people are poor because they're lazy or stupid or their parents are lazy and stupid. I don't know what you personally believe, right? Is it some mixture of the two? For myself, I think it's entirely random. I think we like to think that people are rich because they earn it, and then we think, like to think that people are poor because they also earn that. And I, I think it's I think it's random happenstance. I don't think people have that much control over where they end up in the class struggle. Okay. Last thing I want to talk about today is this rise of textiles, which I know sounds really boring to talk about it that way. So often we hear industrial revolution, and we think steam engine, railroads, factories, like large buildings pumping out smoke, and that out of that smoke we get progress or something. But that all sort of misses the point. Why are the factories being built? Why is the railroad worthwhile? People don't realize how expensive the railroads were to build, how expensive the factories are. Like they're not doing this for their, their, benef their own benefit, they're doing it to make a profit. How can you spend that much money and still make a profit? Because everyone wants soft clothes. Everyone wants cloth. Everyone wants to call it textiles. People want clothes, they want socks. They want towels, they want blankets, they want quilts, they want carpets, they want rugs, they want handkerchiefs. These are not things that you can find on a tree. The demand for cheap cloth is eternal because cloth, so far, we have not yet been able to make a cloth that actually lasts very long. The closest thing we get are the synthetics, and nobody likes the way they feel. Like when people wear those cheap Halloween costumes, they're like, oh, why does this feel like garbage? Well, because it's entirely polyester. No one actually likes the feel of polyester that much. All of these other things, the canals, the railroads, the power plants, the steel mills, all of these things are in service of Textiles. I mean, I use that word textile as a, a general term, meaning all soft things made from cotton or silk or wool 
all these different products that did not really exist. Right? As late as the 1600s, the average home in Europe has nothing soft in it. And the things that are soft are the most valuable things you own. Your clothing. Right? Like the idea of having a towel, a piece of cloth that you keep around the house whose only job is to get wet and then get dry and then get wet. And that's its only job. That is not a thing that exists before the Industrial Revolution. But we can see this in like the typical homes of the time, how the textile revolution changes things. Suddenly you can have a piece of cloth whose only job is to cover the table. That's how cheap cloth has become. Not just for the wealthy in their mansions, but the average person can now own multiple pairs of clothing. It's supposed to be the same piece of clothing you wear every single day that you wash three times a year. You now can have multiple sets of clothing. It's difficult for us to imagine this world because we don't live in that existence anymore. Like the, Our world is still based on the idea that everyone should be able to have as much soft things as they want, but within reason, I suppose. And this goes kind of overboard. By the time you get to the 20th century, it used to be common in this country for a house to have carpets on the walls, even on some ceilings. We've, we've gone back from this a little bit, but this, this design, like that's not wallpaper you're seeing. Those are carpets. It's the walls themselves are soft. Everything is soft. Everything is soft and cushy and full of textiles. This is the world created by the Industrial Revolution, and that's why the Industrial Revolution was possible, because there was infinite demand. People are always willing to have something else that's soft, especially if it's cheap. So, prior to the Industrial Revolution, this wasn't possible. What made it possible? Plantations, right? Cotton, cheap, 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 cheap cotton. How do you make cotton cheap? Don't pay the people who grow it. Don't pay the people who pick it. Don't pay the people who work it out for you. So what used to be done by slaves is now almost entirely done by children. Not in this country, yay, we can stand up and say, yeah, but our cotton's grown in an ethical way. Here's the funny thing. At no point has there ever, or will there ever be a force making your manufacturers tell you where they get their cotton from. Your shirt might say made in the USA, but there's nothing to do with where the material came from. Right? There's, there's no international market that says all the cotton from this country has to stay in that country. Every now and then someone will get upset and say, oh, but no, no, we shouldn't use child labor for this. And then the news cycle goes on. They launch some rockets, somebody goes to war. Like, in my own lifetime, I have seen this drive to end child slavery in the cotton fields probably about 15 or 16 times just since the year 2000. And then people get all upset, they sign some online petition, and they forget about it. Slavery is not gone. And it's everywhere. The United States is one of the few countries that absolutely refuses to allow children onto a cotton field. But most of our cotton comes from places where it's entirely run by children. Now, of course, obviously the children don't plant it, right? I mean, the children are there to pick it. The children are there to work in, in the factories that actually make the goods. And this isn't changing. You might think, oh, but it's 2020. Like this, they're going to stop. We're not going to stop it. Do you know how much your clothing would cost if you actually had to pay the people who picked it? Nobody wants that. 
So this is something I have a little bit of personal experience with. I spent a little time in Uzbekistan, and I, I saw the kids in the fields, and I'll tell you what, they love that time of year. It's usually around the end of September, October. They're just, all the schools closed for about three to four weeks, as long as it takes to pick the entire cotton harvest. And those kids, it is like summer camp for them, because it's the only time when they're away from their families, away from their, you know, the, the teachers are out in the fields with them as chaperones, but the kids just, you know, they're not, they don't realize how they're being shafted. The fact that none of them are being paid anything. It's like, yeah, we don't have to go to, we're not in class today, right? And the school has the same cafeteria set up, so they, they, they're fed every day by the state, the same people that pay for their cafeteria food. But think of how nice it would be if they were actually like getting what they were, yeah, it's slavery, right? It's child labor, it's wrong, but the kids themselves are not gonna be fomenting for this. They are not, if you told these kids, like, hey, there are people in other countries who want this not to happen, they would be mad at you. They're like, no, this is the best time of the year because we're away from our parents, we can do whatever we want, we're out in the fields, and it's fun. You can't necessarily count on children to advocate for themselves because they're dumb, right? They're kids, they don't actually understand the system in terms of its inequality towards them. And nothing is changing, right? The same women textile workers who 100 years ago are fighting for their rights, now their granddaughters and grandsons could care less about the same thing happening somewhere else in the world. Okay, so what we're going to be talking about on Monday is Thomas Malthus and also Marx. Malthus is usually called the father of economics. He is one of these taxonomists, right? He's trying to define the world and he comes up with this very basic law. Population grows exponentially. Food grows arithmetically. What you need to understand is that is not actually true. That is out and out false. But he is so convinced it's true, he can't even be bothered to prove it. He says it's an obvious law of nature. He's widely hated at the time as being very heartless, because he says like basically poor people shouldn't be allowed to have sex. Ebenezer Scrooge is based on him. So when Scrooge in A Christmas Carol says, if the poor would rather die, they'd better do it and increase the surplus population, like that is a direct quotation from Malthus. This is a Malthusian catastrophe. The idea that population will grow this way, and the production of food grows this way, and at this point, everything falls apart. What you need to understand is, yes, there have been famines, yes, there have been mass die-offs in the world, in our history, it's never been because of this. This is not a thing that actually exists. We're gonna be talking about that on Monday. <laughs> The Enlightenment is full of people who are convinced this is real and that their number one job is to control poor people. Poor people are the problem because all they do is have sex and have kids. We don't want more poor people, we want more rich people. Yeah. We need something interesting for you to think about when we get there on Monday. So. Okay, so by the end of today, I hopefully will discuss what I mean by the creation of feudalism textile revolution and a Malthusian catastrophe. Thanks,